opening illustration from Bible.org. Three mean-looking guys on motorcycles pulled into a truck stop cafe where a truck driver, a little guy, was sitting on the, at the counter quietly eating his lunch. The three thugs saw him, grabbed his food, and laughed in his face. The truck driver didn't say a word. He got up, paid for his food, and he walked out. One of the bikers, unhappy that they hadn't succeeded in provoking the little man to a fight, bragged to the waitress, he sure wasn't much of a man, was he? The waitress replied, no, I guess not. Then glancing out the window, she added, I guess he's not much of a truck driver either. He just ran over three motorcycles. <laughs> the familiar saying, don't get mad, just get even, sums up the world's philosophy of how to deal with someone who wrongs us. But in contrast to the world's way, God prescribes a radical approach when we are wronged. Ephesians 4.32 says, we are to be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. It's easy to say that, but it's a lot harder to do. And the difficulty increases in proportion to how badly we've been hurt. When we've been badly hurt, we don't feel like forgiving that person, even if they repent, at least not until they've suffered a while. We want them to know what it feels like and to pay for what they've done to us. And maybe there's some of us here today struggling with those feelings this morning. Maybe it's something that happened to us recently or maybe it's been, a, it's been a while. If we're bitter and unforgiving, we're not obeying the two greatest commandments, which are to love God and love others. Bitterness not only displeases God, it spreads to others, defiling many as we see in Hebrews 12, 15. So if we want to please God, we must ask ourselves this question. How can we root out bitterness and truly forgive those who have wronged us? So we've been studying the life of Joseph, and he had, a way to, he had to find a way to avoid bitterness and learn to forgive. He had been repeatedly hurt. His own brothers had planned to kill him, but instead sold him into slavery at the last minute. As Potiphar's slave, he was faithful and upright, but was falsely accused of attempted rape by Potiphar's wife. He spent years in prison and was forgotten by a man he had helped, who could have pled his case to Pharaoh. Yet in spite of all this, Joseph never grew bitter towards God or towards others. In fact, he was able to forgive his brothers for what they had done to him, forgiving them even before they apologized to him. And then when he revealed himself to them, he was able to embrace them and kiss them and weep over them. And then he brought his entire family to Egypt, setting them up in their own land and providing for them in every way. Joseph's actions towards his brothers proved that he had forgiven them. Joseph, because of the way he lived, his actions and his words, has been called a type of Christ. Typology is a form of symbolism that is prophetic. In the Old Testament, there are people and objects that prefigure, foreshadow, or whisper of something that is yet to happen or of someone, most often Jesus, who is yet to come. Joseph is clearly seen as a type of Christ throughout his life, presenting a remarkable whispering of Jesus Christ. The typology between Joseph and Jesus highlights God's sovereignty and providence in ordaining events and individuals in, pre in redemptive history 
and it serves to deepen the understanding of God's unfolding plan for us and in the world. In Genesis 45, Joseph acknowledges God's sovereign hand in his suffering, in his betrayal, and in his eventual exaltation. This strikingly parallels the narrative of Jesus, who as recorded in Acts chapters 2 and 4, was betrayed and crucified according to God's predetermined plan. In both cases, God's providence ordained the evil intentions of men to bring about the deliverance of his people. So far in Genesis, we've seen numerous typological connections between Joseph and Jesus. First, we saw betrayal and hatred. Joseph was betrayed and hated by his brothers, foreshadowing Jesus' betrayal by his own people. Second, temptation and sinlessness. Joseph resisted temptation and remained sinless with Potiphar's wife, reflecting Jesus' sinless nature. Third, false accusation and condemnation. Joseph was falsely accused and condemned, mirroring Jesus' unjust trial and crucifixion. And lastly, exaltation and salvation. Joseph was raised to a position of authority besides Pharaoh, becoming the savior of many, prefiguring Jesus' resurrection and ascension as the ultimate savior. So this morning we're going to continue to see more typological connections between Joseph and Jesus as we study Genesis 50, verses 15 to 21. Just as Joseph was the whisper of Jesus by his life, as Christ followers, we are also to be whispering Jesus by our lives, our actions, and our words. In order to do this in our everyday lives, we must become more like Jesus. As that process of spiritual growth or sanctification happens, we will live as Joseph lived, as a whisper of Jesus. So our big idea this morning that God wants us to understand is that we must become more like Jesus. Again, this is our theme for the year as we strive to become more like Jesus in our devotion to prayer, to scripture, to serving others, to generosity, to fellowship, to evangelism, and to worship. Those are all talked about in this year's Spiritual Life Journal, which can be found on the information station wall in the foyer. Before we start our study of how Joseph was the whisper of Jesus and how he is our example of becoming more like Jesus, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning, I pray that you pour out your Holy Spirit on us. Give us wisdom and insight into what you want us to learn and obey. Open our hearts and minds to what you want us to share with those that we come in contact with this week. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's two points this morning. The first is, is appeal. And that's found in Genesis 50, verses 15 to 17. You can follow along as I read those, those words. This is what God's word says. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of your servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, 
Joseph wept. A couple of weeks ago, we studied the death of the patriarch, Jacob. He had his son's promise to take and bury his body in Canaan. And the last we saw the brothers, they had carried out that promise. We don't know how long they were thinking about what was going to happen to them after their father died. But we now know they did not believe Joseph when he said in Genesis 45, And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. They did not believe that Joseph could forgive them for what they had done to him. So they are now afraid. And they're wondering if Joseph has been holding a grudge all these years. Was he going to get payback now that their father was dead and buried? When they use the phrase pay us back, it shows that they were dreading what Joseph might do to them. But they also realized that they deserved whatever payback they were to get. It seems their father, Jacob, had told the brothers to tell Joseph that he wanted him to forgive his brothers for their iniquity, their transgression, and their sin against him. You know, they sent word to Joseph asking him to forgive them based on this message from their father. They used the word your father, or the phrase your father as opposed to our father, because they wanted Joseph to think about his obligation to forgive them based on what Jacob would want him to do. You know, they were trying to play on his emotions to get his forgiveness. At face value, it sounds like the brothers are trying to pull a fast one on Joseph in order to convince him to not take revenge on them for what they've done to him. What they failed to understand was that Joseph had already forgiven them. He had moved on long before they showed up in Egypt. When Joseph named his first son Manasseh, he was praising God for allowing him to, quote, forgive and forget, unquote his suffering at the hands of his brothers. Now, we don't know for sure if they were lying to Joseph or not about saying that it came from their father, but here's a few things to think about. First, if you remember, Jacob on two occasions had talked with Joseph about burying his body in Canaan and not in Egypt. He could have mentioned forgiving his brothers then, but we don't read that in Scripture. Two, Joseph and all of his brothers were with Jacob when he died, and again, nothing is mentioned. Three of their father really said this to his brothers, to the brothers, and they were to relay it to Joseph, then why not go meet him face to face? You know, it's always e easier to lie behind one's back than it is their face. On the other side now, this possibility, that the possibility that it's true, it would not be the first time in Genesis that something had been brought out later that was never mentioned before. So I will leave it up to you to decide. But nevertheless, the brothers are afraid of what Joseph might do to them now. And interestingly, after they recount what their father said, they actually confess that they did sin against him. They refer to themselves as servants of the God of your father, hoping that Joseph would act like their father's God, who is the one who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. That comes from Wyndham's commentary. But again, we are reminded that Joseph had already forgiven his brothers, and the proof is seen in what he does next. It says he wept because he was saddened that they didn't believe that he had forgiven them before. They didn't trust Joseph that he wouldn't punish them now. He wept because reconciliation 
had not been fully realized, which is what he had hoped for. So how was Joseph able to root out bitterness and truly forgive his brothers? He had to have the proper attitude towards them in order to truly forgive them. He had to have an attitude of humility before them. And he could not keep score of all their wrongs. And he didn't easily take offense when they had hurt him again. He didn't get upset. He didn't yell and scream, why can't you believe me? No, he wept. Because he realized that all these years, they had continued to live with the guilt of what they had done. The problem was that the brothers had never confessed their sin until now. So how can we model Joseph and move toward becoming more like Jesus? We must forgive the wrongs done to us by others, even before they come and ask for forgiveness. This humility before others is important. If we dwell on the wrongs done to us for too long, we become bitter and filled with hate. It will eat us up inside, and if we don't take care of it, it will cause us to plot revenge on those who have hurt us. And we need to remember that Jesus forgave others even while he was on the cross. Luke 23, 34 says, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Romans 5, 8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus did not wait for us to confess what we had done before he forgave us. He forgave us, he showed us how much he loved us by dying on the cross, and then he pursued us into a relationship with him where we could come to repentance and salvation. So maybe this first next step on the back of your communication card is for you and will help you to become more like Jesus. That is, my next step is to forgive those who wrong me before they ever ask for forgiveness from me. Brings us to our second point this morning, which is assurance. And that's found in Genesis 50, 18 to 21. Again, follow along as I read those verses. And this is what God's word says. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them, and he spoke kindly to them. Once his brothers had sent the message from their father to Joseph, they then followed with a face-to-face visit. It's possible that they waited for Joseph to call them but they threw themselves down before Joseph and announced that they were his slaves now this was another fulfillment of Joseph's boyhood dreams but notice that Joseph didn't say I told you so he told them that was not necessary and they are not to be afraid he assured them that he wasn't holding a grudge against them he wasn't going to take revenge on them and to prove this he said to them am I in the place of God you remember this was the same question that Jacob had asked Rachel when she complained to him that she was barren but there is a difference between these two questions Walton says when Jacob used the same rhetorical question in response to Rachel's barren condition he was confessing his inability to assume the role of deity in contrast Joseph's use of the question reflects his own commitment to restraint 
he refuses to take on the role of deity. And Hamilton says the Septuagint renders his question, for am I God's surrogate? Meaning that they had no fear of retribution for Joseph had God's view of things. And therefore, he is above retaliation. Joseph denied that he was in God's place. He refused to cross that line. Joseph will only be God's instrument, never his substitute. And that's important for us to remember as well. Joseph knew that to forgive others, we must realize our proper place before God. We must allow God to be the judge and not ourselves. We, we must humble ourselves before the sovereignty of God and believe that God is good in all of his ways. We see that in verse 20. But look, Joseph didn't sugarcoat what his brothers had done to him. They intended to harm him, and he told them so. That was not to make them feel bad. He was just telling the truth. He wasn't going to sweep it under the rug, but he wasn't going to rub their noses in it either. Joseph saw the sovereignty of God in what had happened to him, and he embraced it. He also called it good because God had used it to accomplish the saving of many lives. Joseph not only forgave his brothers before they had even asked for forgiveness, he had also humbled himself before an almighty God. And as we follow this example of Joseph, we will become more like Jesus. That brings us to our second next step on the back of your communication card this morning, which is to allow God to be the judge, humble myself before his sovereignty, and believe that God is good in all of his ways. So he told them to not be afraid, and he promised to provide for them and, and their children. And he assured them that he had forgiven them, speaking kindly to them. He literally spoke to their heart, reassuring them by his words and his deeds. Speaking to their heart is mostly used in the Bible in cases where there are feelings of guilt, and there is a need for forgiveness and or repentance. There was no malice in his tone at all. And he was still going to provide and care for them as he had since they had first come to Egypt looking for food. Joseph, again in this section, exhibits many attributes that we need to emulate in order to become more like Jesus. He didn't remind his brothers about the fulfillment of his dreams, even though it happened numerous times. He spoke the truth in love. He didn't give them a free pass for what they had done, but he knew it wasn't his place to judge. He had provided for his family and would continue to do so. He was following God's sovereign plan for his life. And when we take our proper place before God, it is easy to express the proper attitude towards others. And we can forgive the way that Joseph forgave his brothers and the way that Jesus forgave us for our sins that nailed him to the cross. My conclusion is adapted from a John Stott article called Becoming More Like Christ. What is God's purpose for his people? God wants his people to become more like Jesus. We see the biblical basis for becoming more like Jesus in three scriptures. The first is Romans 8:29, which says that God has predestined his people to be conformed to the image of his son. Becoming like Jesus is the eternal 
predestinating purpose of God for his people. The second is 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It is by the indwelling Spirit himself that we are being changed into becoming more like Jesus. The third is 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We don't know for certain what it will be like in heaven, but we do know we'll be, we'll be like Christ. We will be with Christ, like Christ, forever. These three, three biblical perspectives are the past, the present, and the future for becoming more like Jesus. And to become more like Jesus is the purpose of God for the people of God. But in what ways are we to become more like Jesus? First, we're to be like Jesus in his incarnation. 1 John 2, 6 says, He who says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same way as he walked. In other words, if we claim to be a Christian, we must be Christ's light. We are to be like Christ in his incarnation, meaning that we're to be like Christ in the humility of Philippians 2, 5 to 8, which says this, had this mind among yourselves, which was in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped for his own selfish enjoyment. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, and he came, became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. We are all called to follow the great example of this humility in coming down from heaven to earth. Second, we're supposed to be like Christ, be more like Jesus in his service. In John 13, it says, he took off his outer garments. He tied a towel around them. He poured water into a basin, and he washed his disciples' feet. When he had finished, he resumed his place, and he said, if then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you, ought, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. To be like Jesus in his service means that just as Jesus performed what in his culture was the work of a slave, so we in our culture must regard no task too menial or degrading to undertake for one another. Third, we're to be like Jesus in his love. Ephesians 5.2 says, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We are to walk in love, meaning that all of our behavior should be characterized by love. But we are also to be like Jesus in his death, to love with a self-giving Calvary love. Fourth, we are to be like Jesus in his patient endurance, which is talking about his suffering. In 1 Peter 2, Peter urges Christian slaves, if punished unjustly, to bear it and not repay evil for evil. We have been called to this because Christ suffered, leaving us an example so that we may follow his steps. This is a call to us to be more like Jesus in suffering unjustly as he did 
Fifth, we're to be more like Jesus in his mission. In John 20, 21, Jesus prayed, As you, Father, have sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. He's talking about his disciples, but he's also talking about us. The disciples' mission in the world was to resemble Jesus' mission. As Jesus was sent into the world by his Father, we are sent into the world by Jesus. And as we put all these into practice, we will become more like Jesus, and we will be whispering him into the world. There are three practical consequences of becoming more like Jesus. First, there will be suffering. Suffering is part of God's process of making us more like his son. Whenever we suffer in our Christian walk, we need to see this in the light of Romans 8, 28 and 29. God is always working for the good of his people. And this good purpose is to make us more like Jesus. Second is the challenge of evangelism. You ever wonder why Christians' evangelistic efforts often end in failure? One main reason is we do not look like the Christ we are proclaiming. John Poulton's book, Today's Sort of Evangelism, writes, the most effective preaching comes from those who embody the things that they are saying. They are their message. Christians need to look like what they are talking about. Christians must be authentic. The Reverend Iskandar Jadid, a former Arab Muslim, has said this. If all Christians were, Christ, were Christians, that is, if they were Christ-like, there would be no more Islam today. Wow. If Christians would just be authentic, authentically Christ-like in every way, imagine what this world would look like. Third is the indwelling of the Spirit. In our own strength, becoming more like Jesus is clearly not attainable. But God has given us his Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to change us from within. So God's purpose is to transform us to become more like Jesus. And God's way to make us more like Jesus is to fill us with his Holy Spirit. This enables us to become more like Jesus in his humility, in his service, in his love, in his suffering, and in his mission. And that brings us to the final next step on the back of your communication card this morning, which says, my next step is to become more like Jesus in his humility, in his service, in his love, in his suffering, and in, in his mission. As the praise team comes forward to lead us in a final song, and as the ushers come to collect the tithes and offerings and communication cards, bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. As we go about this week, help us to remember and obey what we've heard. Help us to be able to forgive others who have wronged us, even before they ask forgiveness from us. Help us to allow you to be the judge. Help us to humble ourselves before your sovereignty and believe that you are good in all your ways. And help us to become more like your son, Jesus, in his humility, his service, his love, his suffering, and in his mission. I pray all this in your son's precious name. Amen. <laughs>